Hello and welcome to the CFA UK podcast series on climate change. My name is John Tihan and I am a portfolio manager with Red Wheel. This is part two of my conversation with James Alexander. James is Chief Executive of UK SIF, the UK Sustainable Investment and Finance Association. In part one, we discussed James' career from student politics to megacity projects and finally to his position as CEO of UK SIF. He then mapped out the sustainability landscape within the UK financial industry, from the most influential government departments to the regulators and task forces that are shaping standards and disclosures. I hope you enjoy part two. So James, tell us about your membership. It is made up of not just asset managers like Redwill, but many other organizations and stakeholders related to the UK financial industry. So please give us a flavor for that membership. Yeah, so it's a really good question. We, we, we deliberately have a really broad membership, and we think that's one of our ma- major strengths as an organization. So our membership right now includes banks, pension funds, asset managers, uh, other asset owners, so you know foundations and philanthropies, um, data providers, law firms, research firms, wealth managers, financial advisors, um, hedge funds, private equity firms, uh, even some not-for-profits uh, are in our membership. So we've now got um, over 300 members. Um, I mentioned earlier, 19 trillion pounds of assets across our membership. Um, and uh, from all different parts of the industry, and and and, and crucially, we're not we're not just a club for the real leaders that are that are driving things forward. We we've got a really great. Not only do we have this breadth of membership in terms of different types of parts of the industry, but we have a kind of depth of membership in terms of some of our members are real leaders and and have, and have been. I guess almost set up in order to to be sustainable in their focus. Other members are much more mainstream, um, been around maybe for hundreds of years, um, and are and are moving into the sustainability space and wanting to do a really good job of it. And that's that's the beauty of our membership that that we've got some people that are that are really good in one area. They're sharing their knowledge and, and with with other members. Um, um, other members are, are learning a lot from from what's happening and, and learning how they can adapt their business as a result. Um, you know, everybody has a part a part to play in this community, and it's really important for us that we're as, as, as mainstream as possible and inclusive as possible. And so, for that reason, we don't we don't require members to you know meet specific targets or disclose certain data or or, or, or you know be a specific have a specific role in a specific place. You know, our membership is is deliberately as broad as it can be. But because it's so broad, obviously, as you say, you've got the benefit of getting all these different views. But how do you manage different conflicts of where these these members come from? So if you think of asset owners have, have, have control of the assets and determine the objectives, you've got asset managers who have a fiduciary duty to the, the ultimate asset owner. And then you've got, as you said, NGOs who perhaps have much more singular objectives. So when you're trying to come to a common position, how do you do that when you've got such a different array of members? Great question. So, so f- first of all, we don't, I don't. I think you know this. This industry is broad and it's varied and it's and it's got lots of different perspectives and views. You don't you don't manage that by just not including them in your membership. You know the, those views will still be there. So we want to bring everybody into a big tent and and have those discussions. And um, I think also secondly, we are a mission led organisation. That's really important to who we are. Um, our mission is that we want to see a transition rapidly to a sustainable finance system. We want to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement on net zero, but also the wider sustainable development goals. Um, and we want to drive leadership. And that means leadership of our members in this space. But also it means we want to drive UK leadership. We want the UK to be a world leader on sustainable finance with all the benefits that that, that, that brings. Um, and so that mission is what really guides us and drives us and, and helps shape our policy positions. And so 
you know, when I, if 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 somebody said, "Oh, we don't like this this um, this this thing that's been proposed because it's just really hard," we would kind of say, mm, "You know, that's not you know if that's if it's something that's helping to achieve our mission and it's proportionate and it's and it's and it's the only available answer, then that just being hard isn't necessarily enough of a reason not to do it." Um, where we, I think, provide a really unique perspective is we're able to say, actually. The financial service industry has looked at this and said, we want to achieve these objectives, but the best way of doing it is by doing this rather than by doing that. And that's that's how we, I think, have a really important and unique voice and why we're able to contribute so positively to um, a wide range of different of different things. Now, when I say contribute positively, I mean, we're able to, to help advance the agenda, but to do so in a way that works for the financial services industry. And that's a really key part of what we do. So when you think about policy creation, how detailed do you get? And this is the challenge that, we face engaging with companies because when we think about there's a, a policy gap and we recognize that the company is up against barriers they can't surmount without the, the, the policy environment changing. We would like to be able to work with them and, and we have done in the past through yourselves and others to, to face government. But of course, what, what we struggle with is the detail. Is this the appropriate policy? Perhaps the corporate themselves, and they obviously have an interest in getting it shaped in a certain way, are we the ones that should be deciding whether that's appropriate or not? So how do you surmount that hurdle? Yeah, so, you know, I think what, what again, what we're doing is figuring out what's best for, for our mission, what's best for the industry, what, what, what's actually going to work. There's no point in having, you know, some, you know, really world-class regulation if it's actually not workable. So, so we, we have to get down into the, into the detail, get our hands dirty, you know, really understand what's going on. We, um, uh, key, you know, some really key areas we've done that recently. I, I mentioned I was part of the working group for the, for the sustainability disclosure requirements for the UK. We spent a huge amount of time on that. Um, I think it was about a year and a half of, uh, uh, of deliberations um, with the FCA on, on the different approach. But then not only that, but when we got the, um, we, we, we created a member working group that was informing our position all the way through um, and informing, you know, we, we were able to, with permission from, from the FCA, take back questions to our members and say, okay, this is what's being discussed and proposed. What would the implications of that be for the industry, for your part of the industry? How would that change the way you work? Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? How would you, how would you work within that framework? And we were able to give really informed and, and detailed advice directly from the, the breadth of the industry on, on how different things would, uh, would, would work, whether they would work and, and what effects, what sort of unintended consequences they might have. And so that, that was really positive for us to, to, to be able to engage in that sort of way. We did the exact same for the UK's Green Taxonomy, the working group that we were part of for, the, for the shaping the UK's Green Taxonomy approach, which hopefully the consultation will be, will be published relatively soon. Um, and so, so, so in that sense, we've been able to, to get lots of members, lots of feedback involved. But, but the only way we can do that is by really understanding what's going on. So we've had to work very hard. Um, we had a lot of member roundtables for our response to the SDR consultation, which ended up running to about 30 pages. The exciting thing, though, because of the, po the quality of our relationship, with, particularly with the FCA, I think pretty much the, the FCA came out with, I think, 10 areas that they wanted to, to review of the SDR following the consultation. They were the 10 areas that we suggested needed to be looked at more closely. But maybe going beyond that, because obviously with financial regulation, you're in a great position. We've got the membership to draw views from. Do you think there's a place for you to go one step further and say, well, we can help industry, so individual sectors, to think about what policies they need changed. Because the, the challenge, as I said, we're facing is that we as investors understand companies can't make progress into alignment that we would like them to, to make because the policy isn't there. And we would like to face government with corporates to ask them to make those changes. Is there a role for UKSIF there to, to partner 
on sectors. So be it energy, be it be it auto, wherever you, you, you see these barriers, do you think there's a role there, or is that is that too far? No, there's definitely there's definitely a role for us there, um, and it's the starting point is that there are a lot of people out there that are making the assumption that financial services can save the world. And I guess on some levels it's a bit depressing, but one of our messages is you can't rely on our industry to do everything, to fix everything, and particularly in the absence of government action. So, you know, government can't just sit back and relax and think and hope that everything's going to be okay because financial services has got this under control. It's just not like that. And so, so one of the things that we're looking at right now is the areas of misaligned incentives. Where are the, where are the things where it would make sense for financial services to be able to shape activity and play a role and move the economy into a more sustainable place. But the way the incentive structures work, or the way the economy works, the way the governance and the regulation works, actually ends up making the opposite happen. Um, and so there's examples in oil and gas, there's examples in, in energy, there's examples in heavy industry. You know, I'll give you an example. If you're a concrete manufacturer or a steel manufacturer in the UK right now, um, you know that you need to be net zero at some point. But also, you probably know that if you're net zero today, your, your costs are going to be higher than all your competitors. There's no kind of green premium on a product that's made in a more greener way. Um, and, so, and so you're actually going to lose out in the short term by being greener. So the question is, would, as an investor, would you be willing to invest in a company to help make it greener, knowing that that might well make that company less profitable, less competitive, and maybe not even exist? That's not, that's not a proposition anyone's going to be excited about. So what do we need? We need regulation to turn that on its head um, and to try and turn that equation upside down. There's different ways of doing it in different industries. A blanket approach would be a kind of carbon tax or a carbon price. Um, we think that there's a lot of positives to that, but it needs to be done in a way that's fair. And particularly in the middle of a cost of living crisis, it might be a very hard um, policy to put forward. But certainly there are approaches around the government's role as a regulator and saying, OK, folks, and to continue the steel and concrete example, if you want to sell steel or concrete in the UK, regardless whether it's made here or made elsewhere, it needs to comply with this set of uh, regulatory parameters in terms of this is how it needs to be made, this is how it needs to be transported, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the key thing is, if the government gives people fair notice, it's achievable with the technology we have available, and, and people trust, this is a really important one because the government has breached this trust recently, but if people trust that when the government says this is going to be the regulation, it sticks to it and it doesn't just uh, back away from it when, uh, when it gets politically tricky, um, then that changes the equation on whether you want to invest. It goes from the risk being to invest in making these green changes to the risk being to not invest. Um, and so these are the sorts of areas where we think government needs to be you know, far more... Um, forward-looking and forward-thinking in terms of how it's going to regulate different sectors because you need to give sectors often even a 10-year time horizon for this. So we need to start thinking today about how these regulations might look in 10 years' time. And that's why it's, this, that's why partly why this is so urgent. We need to get on and think about these regulations now um, in, in order that we can get, to get them in the right place. And that's, that explains then why we're, why we're pushing this approach on energy, transport and buildings as part of our election manifesto campaign, which we're running uh, over the next few months. I think this is really powerful because you mentioned just a little earlier about how finance can solve the problem. Well, worse, maybe government can pretend that finance can solve the problem. Instead, if we in, in, in the financial industry, along with corporates, point out the policy gaps that there are and create contingent targets for our corporates or dependencies, then we can together face government and say, well, we, we can get there, but you need to change 
these particular areas. Otherwise, it's impossible. And I think it's a fair way of them investing in these companies who are carbon intensive, for example, but can make the progress that we would, we would like them. It, it, it's clear and it can then focus attention on what, what needs to change. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and it links back to what is ESG in the first place. And it's kind of early incarnation, ESG was a risk framework. It was for assessing the risks um, that you that you had as a, as a company or as an investment proposition to various environmental and social and governance issues. Now, very rarely is the, particularly the environmental risk, actually that the environmental catastrophe that we, the climate change is gonna, is gonna take the company out of business. That's a, you know, a long-term risk that's, that, that, you know, that probably doesn't factor so heavily into investment decision-making. The risk is more that governments turn around and say, well, you can't do that anymore. You can't make things the way you've been making them. You can't, you can't just throw all these emissions into the atmosphere. And in the same way, on some levels, if you think about it, um, you know, I wouldn't be able to leave UK SIF's trash bin outside on the street and just walk away. That's, you know, that that's not legal because that there's a you know there's a so, social impact there. Eventually, the same thing is going to happen when it comes to emissions going into the air, albeit you can't see them, but they're still there. And and so that I think is why we have this kind of risk factor looking at, at ESG. Another example, actually, just look at social examples. So Deliveroo IPO'd a couple of years ago. Um, quite a lot of companies in our network were were actually quite reticent about engaging in Deliveroo's IPO. Why? because they looked at the ESG risks and said, okay, the entire way that this company makes money is by paying people a very small amount of money to get on bikes and deliver food to people. If there's a change in the way, and, and, and actually just, just on that, the zero hour contracts or gig economy workers, we know that that is not a good lifestyle, that people are struggling, really struggling in those, con in those type of contracts. And so the risk is that a government comes in and says, you know what, you can't do that anymore. And the entire business model upon which that company depends suddenly collapses. And so what you're looking at is an ESG risk that's not based on the thing actually happening. It's based on the regulation um, that, that falls in behind it. And then the other piece of ESG risk, of course, is litigation. Um, and you can see those two things going together quite strongly. Absolutely. And when you think about, as you said, the climate impact itself is so far out. That's not what's really moving the value of a company today. It is the threat of regulation mm. because that's what we're trying to fix for and it goes two ways. It goes to your Deliveroo example, where regulation comes in to remove a, a, a sustainable or an unsustainable practice. But also what we've seen, uh, not just in the UK, but elsewhere in Europe, is regulation rowing back from what were supportive policy areas. We think of sustainable aviation fuel, and some players there have found it very difficult because governments have pulled back from the mandates that they had already put in place. And that brings me on to the UK and the, and, and the importance of stable policy environment. Can you talk to us about that? What's happened? And you wrote, to, you wrote a letter in September about the changes. Can you talk us through that and, and how that is so difficult for, for your membership? Yeah, this has been a really difficult six months. And, uh, um, you know, we've seen uh, the, the government that's, that's, that we now have under Rishi Sunak as prime minister has um, rode back on a lot of different areas related to sustainability. Um, the, the, the main headline or the headline grabbing piece was um, uh, electric vehicles. We did have a 2030 target where you couldn't buy a non-electric vehicle person in 2030. That's now been moved back to 2035. Um, the, there's other pieces in, around um, heat pumps um, 
uh, gas, uh, particularly for off-grid gas-powered uh, houses, um, not being able to replace their boilers. Um, uh, there were some made-up things which were almost kind of populist in the way that they were made up. So there was a, a suggestion that there might have been a meat tax, and then that was immediately said, but we're not going to bring in a meat tax, and we're not going to make you have seven bins. You know, this stuff was all made up. None of this is actually real. Um, uh, but the other really big one that went under the radar was actually to make really fundamental changes to the UK's carbon market. Now, we do have a carbon market in certain parts of the industry and the economy, um, and a lot of carbon credits were issued, which meant that the UK carbon price um, fell quite dramatically. Um, now, it's a higher carbon price that actually is what can drive activity. You know, in the absence of regulation, it's a market-based system that says, okay, if I'm going to have to pay $100 per tonne of carbon, it actually makes economic sense for me not to issue, not to release that carbon um, rather, and instead of paying the $100. If you crash the carbon price, then it, then it, then it doesn't do that and you lose the incentive to, to, to stop people from emitting. Um, and, that's, and that's one of the things that, that happened recently too. So, so we got together with our membership and said, well, we have to do something about this. This is, this is not okay. What? Um, and so we wrote a letter to the Prime Minister. It was signed by more than 30 of our members, um, which actually is one of the one of the broader challenges just of the political environment as a side here. One of the political environment that we're in is that it's very hard for people to put their head above the parapet um, in the in the both the UK and particularly the US political context. And so one of the things that we do is we put our head above the parapet so our members don't have to. Um, but in this in this instance, we thought that this was a really strong um message to actually put members' signatures to. Um, and so more than 30 members were part of that, um, managing collectively £1.5 trillion pounds of assets. Um, and we wrote to the Prime Minister and the message was, these changes, or threatening to make these changes, massively undermines investor confidence. That was the core message. Investor confidence is so important. People have a choice of where they want to invest. They've got the entire world to invest in. Um, making policy commitments and then reversing them uh, as they get hard undermines confidence, you know, suggesting that the government is no longer as committed to sustainability as it once was, massively undermines confidence. When you've got the US that has the Inflation Reduction Act that's bringing trillions of pounds of potential investment, or trillions of dollars, I suppose, of, of investment into the US, we have to be doing everything we can to be bringing, uh, to bringing investment into the UK, to encouraging investors to come to the UK. And making regulation and then changing it at the last second is not going to help that at all. So, so, so we've been very frustrated to see what's been happening in the government, um, and uh, and and I think that the government really needs to urgently, urgently look at uh, look at their approaches. Um, our letter has led to a number of meetings with ministers, which have been very positive, and we've been very, very vocal with our perspective. Um, but as yet, we haven't seen the reversals of these of these changes that we want to see. And then, of course, the question is, uh, you know, the, the changes that were announced how meaningful they are. If, if I take the pushback of the, the, the ban on, on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars from 2030 to 2035, at the same time, auto manufacturers are still required to increase their proportion of sales to, I believe, 80% by 2030. So there's a bit of a, a weakening at the headline level, but the policy beneath it hasn't changed that much. And, and with the boilers, it was, it was, I think it was oil boilers were the focus. So there feels to be, there's a political aspect to this where at a top level there's some signaling going on ahead of an election potentially in 12 months time but underneath the hood it seems that maybe the changes aren't as material as the headline would suggest maybe again in a similar vein it's the the, the mandating of licenses in the north sea that we're, we've we've seen announced recently so it feels that there's there's politicking going on with with a view to 12 months ahead but underneath it's maybe not as we can be a little bit more positive about it. Yeah, I think I think you're right in many respects. The, the, 
The one thing I would say, and this is so bizarre when I speak to politicians that they, that they didn't previously understand this, which is that if you're in industry or you're an investor, you're trying to work out the environment that you're investing in or operating in. And the only way you can really do that is by listening to what politicians and political leaders say. And so you are, every speech that's made, every comment that's put into the papers, every time someone's on the radio, you're trying to decipher and think about well, what does this mean? What, what is the government committed to? Is the government, does the government have the same vision for the future as I think they do? And are there signs that they might be changing their vision for the future? And and people hang on every word that comes out of the mouths of, of politicians, particularly of the of the prime minister and the chancellor. And so, and so, and I think politicians don't understand the extent to which that's the case. I think there is a there's a, there's a almost a kind of political desire from some in government that that government and the economy operate entirely independently from one another, and that what government does doesn't impact the the, the decisions that businesses make. But that couldn't be further from the truth. The decisions that are made day to day by businesses in some part are impacted, particularly big strategic decisions, on where they think the country's going. What direction is it going to be in? What are going to be the, what's, what's the way we're going to live our lives in 2030, in 2040? How do we get to work? How do we, what do we eat? How do we heat our homes? You know, these are fundamental questions that government needs to have a real grip on the answer to. Um, and, and, and yet, it feels as though government doesn't want to take on that role and isn't, and isn't willing to take that role. They'd rather have a free market approach to it. And, and, and you know, the, the US approach has been to sort of say, well, we can have a free market, but we need to subsidize and stimulate new industries. And so they're looking at um, industries where there's neither supply nor demand. Um, you know, two very obvious examples are carbon capture and storage and hydrogen. You know, there is nobody going around building a building a power plant that needs hydrogen in it because there's no one supplying hydrogen. At the same time, no one's supplying hydrogen because no one has a power plant that needs hydrogen. So how do you fix that? Well, government needs to come in and do one thing or the other, either through subsidies, through direct purchasing, you know, through other approaches, um, because the private market, the private sector is not going to do that on its own. That's partly where I'm talking about these misaligned incentives. That's what the US has recognized. Now, the US is in a really interesting position. They're a big enough economy that they conceivably could win in every single area of the green transition. They probably won't win in everything. That's fine. They want to have the best possible chance of doing that. So they put this huge subsidy program in that operates across the economy. There's now people building hydrogen plants with no off-takers because the subsidies are big enough to make that worthwhile. Now, what's going to happen in a few years' time? People will say, hey, free hydrogen? Yeah, we'll go and use that hydrogen. And, and suddenly, an industry requiring hydrogen will build up until eventually there'll be a market-based um, mechanism and people will pay hydrogen the value that it's worth and that, that makes it economical to build, um, to, to produce. That's how you create these industries. It's how we've created previous industries in the past, both in the UK and, and elsewhere. Um, and it's how we're going to create some of these new industries of the future. The, 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 the challenge for the UK, we're probably not big enough that we can try and win in every single area. We certainly don't have enough money in the coffers right now where we can try and subsidize every area. So we're going to have to do something much harder. And that is to pick some winners and to figure out what parts of the economy we want to be good at versus the rest of the world. Now that's extremely difficult. It requires a lot of effort and a lot of political, um, uh, I suppose, you know, it's a very political issue to, to consider, but we're going to have to do it or else we're going to lose in everything. So one of the core areas that we think we should be specifically aiming to be a winner is to be the world leader in sustainable finance. We have everything we need here to be that. Um, we've got a track record of being you know, incredible financial services powerhouse. Two thirds of financial services jobs in the UK are not in London, which is also a really strong positive. Um, so why can't we be financing the entire world's transition? And how amazing would that be for the UK if we were able to do that? And that ambition that was set out at the start of the PM's tenure 
when you said you wanted to have a, a net zero financial center. Wouldn't you think that changed course or, or maybe that's still the objective, but there's obviously, as you said, signaling that has changed. I think, I think it's what you said earlier. We saw the Uxbridge by-election and that was deemed to, you know, I think the Tories had all but thought that they'd lost that. Um, uh, it was deemed to, to have been won for the Tories on the basis of opposition to the ULEZ, the low emission vehicle charge in London, which was extended just a few weeks after that by-election. Um, the Tories grabbed hold of that and said, "Hey, this is this this is something we can run with." You know, we you know, and and and, and they, you know, it's, it's a fair it's, it's fair to be to give credit on what people think. People are in favour of action on net zero. They tend to be less in favour of action on net zero net zero when they have to pay for it. Um, and you know, as is the case with lots of policy areas. Um, and so that's what the government has been kind of looking at. Um, when you're facing polling numbers that suggest that you're going to lose the election quite substantially, you've got to do something big to try and to try and fix the situation. Um, but it is a real shame that on something as important, where there was such strong cross-party consensus as the you know entire future of the planet, and 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 actually alongside it, all the economic benefits that we can gain if we if we play it smartly and we go further and we go we go quicker than other people, um, that we should be using that as one of the key levers for this election. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not looking forward to this election. I think it's going to get bogged down in, you know, the the culture wars issues of um, gender rights and, and 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 climate change, and that is not the conversation we need to be having in this country. We need to be talking about the future of uh, of the economy, about how we grow good jobs across the country that that can that can that can take us on the journey towards sustainability. That's what I want the election to be, but I think it's going to get bogged down in something very different. And just bring it back to the practicalities of engaging with your members and creating that that policy. How does it happen in practice? So over the the last few weeks um, and going forwards um, for the next few months, we're going to be we, we we have been and we will be working with members. And we had a whole series of roundtables. It's been really incredible, actually, looking at the real economy, looking at where there's been real challenges to create investments and trying to figure out what is. What, is, what are the, space, the parts of the economy where we can, where we need government to support us to to, to invest more effectively? Um, and some of the answers that have been coming out from that grid connections. You know, if you, uh, we've got members that are that are building uh, or want to build transactions in even new areas of, of power that I didn't think were yet viable, like like um, energy storage. Um, there are viable propositions on the table for these, but they've been given grid connections of 2032, 2033. That just kills a project in its tracks. You can't, you can't have something that you build within two years that doesn't get connected to any power lines for another 10 years. I mean, this, this is so, so fixing the grid connection issue, but actually what, what's underlying the grid connection issue? Well, we need to fix planning. We need in the UK to create a predictable, reliable planning system where if you want to put planning permission to build something new or to create something, you know how long that's going to take, you know what the steps are, what the processes are, what the likelihood of success is. Um, that rely, that depends as much on you know, the, fixing the grid as it does on creating new energy sources, renewables. Um, you know, this is what's going to create the comparative advantage for the UK versus other countries. And that's what we're looking for. We have to be, in the absence of huge subsidies as well, comparatively better or easier to do, it, to do business, to, to make investments in the UK than elsewhere in the world. And that's, that's, that's the simple equation we have, to, we have to answer. Does this change in policy make us better than elsewhere to invest or not? Um, and that's what the government should really be thinking about. Um, you know, good connections and other one. We need to. We need to. You know, it's sad to say, but we do need to reverse this 2030 EV um, change to make it to, make, to put it back to 2030. So yeah, a lot, a lot to do. There's a huge amount to do here. And I think you know we're all in the same path in a way in that we understand that politics is is going to determine a huge amount of the outcome of of what happens. 
You started your career in student politics. Is this an attraction for you that, that perhaps having gone from the mega cities projects where you're implementing you know, real projects and seeing that tangible outcome moving into UK SIF where you can have an influence in policy? Do you think the future holds something more in, in, in politics for you? I mean, never say never, but I, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a member of a political party. I think that's, you know, I, I think that's really important for UK SIF because we are apolitical. Um, you know, we are not, we're not pushing for one party over over another. Um, I think it's really important and positive to be engaging politically. Um, but does that mean I want to, to be a politician? I, I, not at not this stage. I think the challenge for politics right now is, is social media, Twitter. Um, it's, it's a 24-7 role where you're only being attacked all the time. I think you need very, very thick skin to deal with that. Um, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's for me at this stage. But like I said, never say never. And I think it's a very important point you made there in that not getting involved, not being drawn into politics. We can criticise politicians and governments because of the policies they put forward or implement, but not to be dragged into politics because I think that can undermine the work we're trying to do. Exactly. You know, we're not we're not taking sides here. We are we are. If someone does something good, we will give them all the praise for it. If someone does something that we don't think is going to take us in the right direction, we'll we'll make that clear as well. You know, that is we we are we want to be extremely fair here. We are, we're not taking sides. We are pursuing the the approach that we think is going to be best for the for the country in the long term, and that is about getting that private investment in to drive the sustainable future. And we have seen the UK take leadership in the past, make great progress. And that's really where we want the UK to get back to, to be showing leadership globally. Absolutely. COP26, I think, was the high watermark for the UK's sustainable leadership on the global stage. We've gone, you know, we've regressed from that, but we can go back to that. And I, and I really want to see us thinking of ourselves as a world leader on sustainability. We've got, we've, got the, we've got the skills, we've got the universities, we've got the industry, we've got the investment potential to, to make, you know, everything can come together very quickly in the UK. Um, we've just got to now grab it and take that opportunity. Great to end on a positive note. Well, James, it's been great talking to you. It's so helpful to get an understanding of the sustainable finance landscape in the UK, the various industry initiatives, organizations, and standards, and how it all fits in the context of, of regulation and government policy. Your energy is hugely impressive, and you and the UK SIF are well-deserving of the various individual and organization awards you've received recently and over the last couple of years. Thank you for your time to share your knowledge and insights with us on our CFA UK podcast. Thank you very much, John. It's great to be here. And thank you, our audience, for listening. If you found this conversation as interesting as I have, then please hit like and share with others. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.